Okay, so the first reading is from Judges 2. Uh, we're starting at verse 6 and we're going to 15. And we're on page 250 in the Red Bibles. Okay. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. Because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they no, were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Continuing on, 16 to 23. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned <clears throat> under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I had laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Well, how excited are you to be here in the book of Judges? Judges is full of action. If you thought the Avengers was worth watching, you should read Judges. More violence, more action than the Avengers. But don't worry, there's romance as well. We've got both sorts of stories. It's an exciting book, full of great stories you might have done in Sunday school, but it's also a pretty confusing book. All sorts of people get involved in the action, in the violence, and you it's hard to keep track of who's who and why you should care about them. And to be honest, it's hard to figure out who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, because often the good guys who you think are supposed to be good seem pretty bad, and you're not sure whether you're supposed to like them and want them to win. 
How do you make sense of this book of Judges? And if you have struggled to make sense of all the stories, how on earth are you going to see the message? How are you going to work out what it is that God wants to say to us? It's a little bit like one of those shows that you've paid a lot of money to see, but you haven't read up on it beforehand, you've turned up, and especially if it's opera and it's in another language, you aren't going to have a clue what is going on. So what do you do in that situation? Well, if it was me, I think I'd just be tempted for the first time in my life to actually buy the program. You know what I'm talking about? You've paid $100 to go and see this show. You're in some fancy venue. And then someone someone wants to charge you $25 for some magazine with glossy pictures in it and probably advertising as well. I'm such a cheapskate, I've never bought it in my life. But I reckon for the book of Judges, I would. Because how on earth are you going to make sense of it? What do you get in the program? Well, you need someone to set the scene for you to let you know where it all starts. Where are we up to? You need the program in the book of Judges to set the pattern for you so you know how to understand all the stories that happen. And you need the program to help you to see the message. Who are the real characters? And what is the book trying to tell you? Well, tonight I'm not going to charge you $25. I'm just going to charge you 25 minutes. Page 249, and you're going to need your outline as well. Let's set the scene. Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua. Well, what a dramatic way to begin, don't you think? The death of anyone, but the death of Joshua... He's the great leader of the people of Israel. He proved his worth, do you remember, as one of the 12 spies who went into the land and most of them said, the people there are too big, we can't do it. But Joshua said, we can. We can trust our God, he can defeat them. And so he survived out of that generation and it was him that God chose to fill the shoes of Moses when Moses died and what big shoes they were. God said, be strong and courageous because you will lead this people to inherit the land. And he did. You remember last year, God was the promise keeper. They took the land. Mission accomplished was the banner. They conquered the land. He allocated the land. They just need to go in and drive out the remaining inhabitants. And now, chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of of Joshua. How on earth are they going to go on without Joshua? Who is going to fill his big shoes? Well, you look there in chapter 1, verse 1. There isn't anyone. There's no succession planning after Joshua. There's no leader. Or is there? After all, it wasn't Joshua, was it, who brought them into the land, who gave them the land. He was not the promise keeper. It was God who fought for them. Not one of God's promises failed, and God will keep his promises now. All they need to do is trust him and obey him. And verse 1, they start well, don't they? Who do they ask? 
to give direction now that Joshua has died. They ask, God, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites, they ask. The Lord answered, Judah is to go up. I have given the land into their hands. They're keen and they've got direction. And so off Judah goes, the tribe of Judah. And they go well. Verse 4, they go to Bezek and they're victorious. Verse 8, they go to Jerusalem and they're victorious. Verse 10, they go to Hebron and they're victorious. Verses 4 to 18, it's like a newsreel sent back home to explain, to show their success. It's as if you can see the town names fall one after another as they drive out the inhabitants. And it's not just general, it went really well. There are individuals as well. Do you see there in verse 7, there's this king called Anani Bezek who has been cruel to other people, now gets punished and he recognises that God is punishing him through the people. Verse 12, there's this guy called Othniel. There's an offer, if you take the city on your own, you'll get the girl. He takes the city, he gets the girl. What a great story. They trusted God, they obeyed him, they drove out the inhabitants. The Lord was with them. And the first newsreel is very positive. But then the tide turns. Verse 19, have a look. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. They took the hill country, but not the plain. And then from then on, it seems, the tide has turned and tribe after tribe can't do it. Verse 21, the Benjamites. Verse 27, the uh, Manasseh. 29, Ephraim. 30, Zebulun. 31, Asher. 33, Naphtali. They don't drive out the people. They live with them instead. By the, verse 34, it's not God's people who control the action. It's the Amorites who are in control. And verse 36, we're told how much territory they have. The Amorites not God's people. They do not drive out the inhabitants. They fail and they live amongst them instead. Do you see the second newsreel is not positive. And you're left asking the question, what went wrong? How could you start so well and be so victorious and then the tide turned? Well, the newsreel, of course, has got to explain why this happened, and it's clear enough, isn't it? Verse 19, we read it before, they had iron chariots. They were too strong. Verse 35, they were not only too strong, some of them were just simply too determined, and you can't beat people who really want to win, can you? We did not, it says, because we could not. During the Allied invasion of Iraq a couple of decades ago, uh, the Iraqi information minister had the job of convincing the Iraqi people that it was going really well. 
And those allies had no chance against the mighty Iraqi army. Muhammad Sayyid al-Sahaf, his name was, though he was better known on the internet as Baghdad Bob. He was highly popular because he talked about how the Allies had no chance, they were committing suicide in droves because they were so scared. And even though you could hear in the background the Americans just a few blocks away about to overrun his compound, he was still telling how they were defeating them. Clearly, he was telling lies. Judges 1 is not quite like that, is it? It admits the reality that they were losing. But as you read it, I think, you are not sure about the reason that's given. We did not because we could not. Have a look again at verse 19. There's a problem in verse 19. It just doesn't wash when you read it carefully. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took position of the, of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. Now, can you put those two ideas together? The Lord was with the people of Judah as they attacked, but they could not beat the people with iron chariots. Now, what do you think? Does God have a problem with iron chariots? He's not quite strong enough. He's never encountered chariots before. He has, hasn't he? He got them washed up in the Red Sea. No problem at all. Who are they kidding in verse 19, we could not. We did not because we could not. A bit later on, they get stronger, do you notice, as they live amongst the inhabitants of the land. And so verse 28, they get some of the inhabitants of the land and subject them to forced labor. They make them their slaves. Now let me ask you, which is easier to do, to make a group of people your slaves or to drive them out of the land? They're just as easy as each other, except they were commanded to drive them out of the land. Why didn't they do it? Because it's quite convenient to have slaves. We did not because we could not? I don't think so. And God is not fooled. Chapter 2, he says what he reckons about this newsreel, this propaganda. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Under Moses I brought you out of Egypt and threw the chariots into the Red Sea. Under Joshua, I led you into the land that I swore to give you, and it worked. Do you seriously want me to believe that you did not because you could not, says God? You did not because you would not. You didn't trust me. You didn't obey me. You can't get any more explicit, can you? You disobeyed me. It started small. If you look back at uh, verse 3, the disobedience seems small and quite friendly. Who shall go up and attack the uh, Canaanites? Judah shall go. Quite clear. Judah. And what did Judah immediately say? Hey, Simeon, why don't you come too? 
friendly and caring and wanting to share in the fun? No, I don't think so. They are scared and they don't trust God and so they invite another tribe to come. It seems innocuous, but it shows that they don't really trust him. Again, it's small, but in verse 22, as they're attacking a town called Bethel, the spies saw a man, verse 24, coming out of the city and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city and we will see that you are treated well. Why do they need to do that? God's with them. And literally it says, not we will see that you are treated well, we will show covenant love to you. When God had said, you shall not make a covenant with them. It seems small because it's just one guy. But the pattern is set, is set and they keep on doing it. They do not drive out the inhabitants. They live amongst them instead. It's not we did not because we could not. No, they did not because they would not. And God sees through them. And I reckon that should sound familiar to us. Often we know what, we, what God wants us to do, don't we? He wants us to forgive other people. He wants us to speak the truth. He wants us to share Jesus with other people. He wants us to be prayerful in our lives. He wants that temptation that we keep on giving into again and again. He wants us to say no to it. And we say, we do not because we cannot don't we? It's too hard, God. I'm too tired, God. I'm too busy, God. I do not because I cannot. And I think, like in chapter 2 here, God's cleverer than that. He hears our excuses and he doesn't buy it for a moment. He doesn't buy my excuses for a moment and I ought to realise that. Come to my senses and admit it. God would take that genuinely, wouldn't he? Indeed, we actually know that God is a forgiving God because of Jesus and he would hear our confession and immediately forgive us. So why do we persist in this excuse business? We should admit we do not because we will not admit it Seek forgiveness and ask God to change us so that we will. Well, God not only sees through their excuses and accuses them, he pronounces judgment on them. Verse 3. Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. You decided to live with them instead. That's the way it's going to be now. You're stuck with them and now you're about to see the consequences. No wonder the people weep. But what do you think? Are they going to change? Especially now that they live amongst the people and their gods? Well, the scene is set, isn't it? For the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua, they would not drive out the people who worshipped idols. And so now they live amongst them. Will they be faithful 
And how will God respond? Well, you you turn the page of that program that you bought. We've set the scene. Now it's time to set the pattern to understand the action. How do I make sense of all the stories that are there in the book of Judges? How do I make sense of all the characters and of the chaos? Well, you see there on your outline, there's a pattern. There's a cycle that we need to understand. Chapter 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. Can you see the problem in verse 6? Something stand out, doesn't quite fit. Joshua was dead, wasn't he? That's how it started. After Joshua had died. Now it says, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites. No, he hasn't reappeared. We've gone back in time again. We've had an introduction, set the scene, Now the book gives us a second introduction, which is going to set the pattern. It assumes the first intro. We're not going over that again, that first generation who failed to drive out the people. Now we focus on living amongst the people. And this time it's not a newsreel and we have to read between the lines and figure out what's really going on and what's really true. No, it's direct. It's clear And it's all about the people and God. Pick it up in verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. There was a generation which was Joshua's generation and when that whole generation had died, there was a new generation who now lived amongst the people. They knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And usually when we read these words, we think what happened was that the first generation knew about God and so they obeyed God. And then this next generation knew nothing about God and so they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How could that be, you ask? Well, the first generation, their parents, must have failed to tell them. They must have failed to do what God had said in Deuteronomy 6, to pass it on to your children, to explain what the Lord had done for them. But I don't think that's what it says. That's the sort of thing that parents who have children who are not following the Lord any longer notice and feel and feel that they are to blame. But are they really to blame? Is that what the verse says? Well, verse 10, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Do you think really, seriously, that the next generation had no idea how their parents got to be living in this new land? Do you think any second generation immigrant has not heard the story how their parents got into the land? Of course they had heard. It was obvious They were different to the people who were already in the land. They knew about the Lord. I think that's clear. They knew about what he had done. But what does it say in verse 10? They knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They knew about the Lord, but they did not know the Lord. And that's exactly what it says in verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Do you see? Who is it who does evil in the eyes of the Lord? It's that second generation. The blame here is not on the parents. 
but on the children. And if you're a parent who's here tonight whose children have forsaken the Lord, turned away from him, I want you to notice verse 11. Children choose to do this. If you're a child of parents, well, this is a warning to us, isn't it? And if you're a parent here tonight whose children are continuing to follow the Lord and you're just inclined a little bit to be proud of that as if you can take the credit for it, well, that's not right either, is it? It's God's grace that does that. What is it that this new generation do? The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Towards the end of the book, it keeps saying that the people in those days did what was right in their own eyes. Today, we would call that doing what's right for me and you can do what's right for you. It's relativism. As if your eyes can determine how you should live. But it says here in verse 11, there is someone's eyes which actually matter. He decides what's right and wrong. And if you're doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, then it is evil. It's the answer here, isn't it, verse 11, to postmodernism. What is it that's evil in the eyes of the Lord? It's serving other gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. At the top of their, their cycle here, what do the people do? They forsake the Lord and serve other gods. God who had promised them, who had given a covenant to them, who had given them the land, they turn away from him. I don't know you, I'm sleeping now with someone else. They prostituted themselves to other gods. And how does God feel about that? He says that is evil. That's the essence of sin, isn't it? Turning to other gods. And how does he react? People, God is angry. Verse 14, in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. How do you feel about that? Are you comfortable with God being angry? It's not a popular idea, is it? We feel awkward about it. Isn't God a loving God? Yes. And love gets angry. When love is spurned by the one whom it loves, it gets angry. And rightly so. A love that does not get angry is not love, it's carelessness. It's apathy. God is a God of love who therefore gets angry. His anger is not capricious, it's not evil, it's not flares up in a moment, it's not unpredictable. It is genuine and righteous. And so he keeps his promise. The peoples became a thorn in their side. He hands them over to them. And they were no longer able to resist them. The hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. The people sin. They forsake the Lord. And the Lord is angry with them and lets them be defeated. How do the people respond? Verse 15, they were in great distress. Verse 18, they groaned 
under their oppression. How does God respond to that? Well, surprisingly, this God who was angry with them has compassion on them. And verse 16, he raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. He's the one who judges them. He's the one who saves them. These leaders are called judges. I have no idea how they got the name judges. It doesn't seem to me they do any judging or very little of it in the book of judging. Uh, judges, they don't put wigs on their head. They don't give uh, pronouncements in court. They don't send people to jail. What do they do? They save people. It's uh, Xena the warrior princess. It's Avengers. It's Superman stuff. They are saviors. And they save people from God's wrath out of the hands of their enemies, verse 18. But verse 19, do you notice, when the judge died, they refused to give up their evil ways. And the arrow goes again, the cycle starts again. Can you see the cycle? People do evil, they forsake the Lord. The Lord is angry and judged the people. The people groan, bottom of the cycle. The Lord raised up a judge to save them out of compassion, but the judge died and it all begins again. It's a terrible going around in circles cycle, isn't it? But it's worse than that. It's not a cycle. Do you see in verse 19, they become even more corrupt and so as you see the pattern of the book go throughout the book as it goes round and around and around it goes down and down and down as the people get worse and worse as the judgments get worse and worse as the judges get worse and worse it's not spinning around on the ice and you don't know what's going to happen it's spinning around in the air in an airplane without a wing and you know exactly what's going to happen there seems to be only one outcome that's the judges downward spiral well have you got the program Sets the scene. They would not drive out the people who worshipped idols, and so they live amongst them. And so it sets the pattern. The people do evil, the Lord's angry and judges, the people groan, and the Lord saves them, but they do evil again. And when you've got that, you're ready to see the message of the book. There are so many people, so many places. But chapter 2 shows you quite directly and simple, there are just two characters in the book, two characters that matter. There's the people and there's God. The people are flawed and God is flawless. Just think about the people for a moment. They would not trust the promise keeper as they entered the land and so they end up living amongst the people. Once they live amongst the people, they forsake the Lord and prostitute themselves to other gods. They're worried about fertility, I take it, and prosperity in the land. Who's going to give us these things? Oh, look, the people of the land, they've got these gods. We'll prostitute ourselves to them. They would not be faithful to the Lord. They are flawed and flawed and flawed at least 
The only good thing you could say about the people is that at least when they're judged by God and things are desperate, they turn back to him. They repent like they're supposed to. Or do they? That's what I used to think until I read chapter 2 this week. What is it that they do when they're judged? Have a look at verse 15. What's their response again? They were in great distress. That's it. Full stop. Like someone who hits their head against a wall and goes, Ouch, that hurts. And then goes and does it again. They were in great distress. And that's all that they do. In fact, when the judge comes along, it says explicitly in verse 17, they do not listen to the judge. They only become more corrupt. Can you see how evil they are? How flawed they are? What are we supposed to do when we see how bad these people are? Well, I've been reading through Judges with my son Elijah, who's nine. We had these Bible reading notes. We've been working through Judges. And uh, we, he, we had this cycle, same, uh, in the book. And I said to him, I heard this once when I was teaching Scripture, that this cycle in the book of Judges, uh, we should call it the thickhead cycle. Because what sort of a thickhead bangs their head against a brick wall, it really hurts, and then they think, I'll do that again. And he quite liked that, you know, age nine, that's pretty on the money, really. But it's not very helpful, is it, actually? Because it sounds like you're looking at someone else and looking at them and going, what a thickhead. Who would do such a stupid thing? Who would forsake God, get judged? He saves you again and then you forsake God and get judged again and do it again and again and again. Who would be so thick-headed? Is that how we should respond to the book of Judges, do you think? Well, who are we supposed to identify with in the story as we watch the show? Is it God, do you think, we're supposed to identify with? Are we like him? No, that doesn't sound right, does it? Are we supposed to identify with the judges, that we're supposed to be strong and mighty like Gideon and Samson? No. We're God's people, saved by God, given his promises. Does that sound like someone in the story? Yes. Where to identify with the people? The people who forsake God and do not trust and obey him and really don't deserve saving. Can you see what we are like? As we look at the book of Judges, we need to see that again and again that we are flawed. Well, here's the other character in this book, the book of Judges. It's God, isn't it? Can you see what the flawless God is like? He makes promises and keeps them. When his people turn away from him in his righteous anger, his flawless anger, he judges them. And in his compassion, not because they repented, they don't. All they merely do is get distressed and he sees his people in distress and he has compassion on them. That's grace, isn't it? That they don't deserve 
And he doesn't just do that once. He doesn't just do it twice. He does it 12 times in the book of Judges. You'd think he'd learn, wouldn't you? But he is that compassionate. Can you see our flawless God? Well, let's put those two characters together. This is the last thing. There's us, the the flawed people of God. And there's God, the flawless God, who gets angry at sin. What do we need? What is the book of Judges trying to tell us again and again and again that we need? It is not that we need to try and be good or better, is it? We're going to fail. Our evil is so bad, his anger is so real, his judgment is so real. What do we need? We need someone to save us. That's why the Lord raised up judges to save them. But let's be frank, we need saviors better than these guys, don't we? Did you notice that the judges here have a problem? Do you see the cycle? They have this habit of keeping on doing the one thing that's not going to help. They keep dying, the silly judges. And so just when it seems to be going well, for the twelfth time, the judge dies again. What do we need? A judge who doesn't die. A saviour who doesn't die, but is a permanent saviour. And what's more, we need a judge who a saviour who is a whole lot better than these guys. There's 12 judges and none of them are perfect. The first couple start pretty good and then it goes downhill from there. Gideon doesn't trust God again and again and again. And as for Samson, the last one, as I looked at the story, there's only one good thing I can find about Samson. And that's that his hair is longer than mine at the moment. Apart from that, he is completely hopeless. We need saviours better than these guys, don't we? A saviour who's permanent and who is flawless. Can you see us? Can you see our God? Can you see what we need? And I think you can see who it is, can't you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Judges and we thank you that right here at the beginning in these couple of introductions, you set the scene, you set the pattern and you help us to see the message. Father, we pray that we would give up making excuses, saying that we cannot obey you when it's really that we will not. Help us to see the area of our life where we need to do that. And Father, we thank you that in the book of Judges we see what we are like, unfaithful, unreliable, and that with a God like you, flawless, we need a permanent and flawless saviour. Now, Father, we thank you that in your compassion you have given us just that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.